0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Father, we are grateful that you've given to us your word, that you've, in your kind providence to your people, you've caused this word to be written down, that we can study it, we can proclaim it, we can hear it, we can hide it in our hearts. We might not sin against you. We pray for your blessing now as we open your word together. We pray that We would receive this as the very voice of God, which it is, not the voice of a man. We pray that our prophet, our priest, our king would speak to us and declare to us his will. That we would respond as humble and eager subjects. Eager to do his will, eager to be subdued, eager to be conformed to his very image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn with me once again to Judges chapter 3, we've actually made it now to the first of the Judges. And when I was a kid, this is the kind time of year that Memorial Day weekend sort of marked the kickoff of the summer blockbuster season. And some of you are old enough to remember what it was like to have maybe the biggest screen in the house was about 13 inches. Maybe we, I think we upgraded to 19 when I was in high school. We had three channels, three network channels, plus PBS. Um... And so to go to a movie theater was a big deal, and, and not only because there was this sort of electricity in the air, but also because you got to see the trailers for what was coming later in the summer. You got to see this, this preview of what was coming, and it would give you little snippets, little bits and pieces, where you got a sense of, of what was coming, but you didn't have the full measure of the thing. We get, Our first judge is Othniel, a judge that gets a little press when we think about the book of judges. I mean we're likely to think about Samson or Gideon and these really bold, colorful kinds of characters. Othniel, he's boring. There's nothing here about him necessarily. There's really not a lot given to us in terms of his background. And actually he's a good guy. He's he's not the the flawed failing judge that we see in the rest of the book. He's actually presented to us as not only the first, but the best of the judges. The title of the sermon today is Othniel, a preview of a Savior. He is, in many respects, a type, a preview of the Christ who would come. Not as much is known about him as we know about some of the other characters, some of the other judges. And, and the reason here is because he is prototypical Our our focus is on the work of God in and through him rather than on his colorful persona. So in a sense, all those other details are left aside so that our eyes are not distracted by other things. We get to focus on what God is doing through Othniel. Othniel serves, again, as a a type of savior king, a type of of deliverer that the people should have been longing for. In this narrative account of Othniel, we have, in a sense, the entire redemptive story of the Bible unfolded to us in five short verses. We'll see three things here that stand out. Again, this this preview of the entire redemptive work that God would later accomplish in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see, first of all, a picture of God's anger against sin. God's anger against sin. And then also, the enslaving effect of that sin upon the people of God. Sin is enslavement. And thirdly, we see a salvation, but not just a salvation. We see a preview of triune salvation in the life and the work of Othniel. Let's read the text together, beginning in Judges 3. We're reading 7 through 11. Judges 3, 7 through 11. Thus the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan. Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. Then the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a savior for the sons of Israel to save them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And Yahweh gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so his hand was strong against Cushan-Rishathaim. Then the land was quiet for forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Thus is the reading of God's word. As we consider the text that's put before us this morning, we notice right away that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Three indictments against them in one short sentence. They did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. This is a blanket statement, meaning all that the Canaanites were guilty of, the Israelites began, even in seed form, to participate in those sins. And we saw last week, those three primary ways in which the people of God neglected Yahweh's commands and statutes was first of all in the area of worship. And secondly, in the areas of, of their marriages and their, their, their sexuality. And thirdly, with respect to the discipleship and the instruction, the education of their own children. And so in every way, they began to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They be, the, the, the canonization of Israel Begins. What should have been the Israelization of Canaan was actually the Canaanization of Israel. But they also were told they forgot Yahweh their God. It doesn't mean that they they it slipped their mind that God existed. It doesn't mean that they, they somehow misremembered that God is the one who brought them into the land. What it means is they forgot him, they forgot his character, his person. They forgot not only the rules and the statute, certainly, but they forgot who God is. They forgot his kindness to their fathers and the promises that he had made to them. And as evidence of this fact, they went and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, both Baals and Asheroth here are plural, and that's intentional. Because the, the Canaanite, it wasn't just a single god. There were all kinds of gods that the Canaanites served at their convenience and at their pleasure. And what happens here, and particularly in this area of worship, is that the people of God were pursuing something that the Canaanite gods seemed to offer them that they preferred. What was it about the Canaanite worship that was appealing? Because, I mean, think about this. We live in a land that has all kinds of religions. Um, I don't remember exactly where it was. Not long ago, I was in a, I think it was a convenience store or something. I'd gone in and to get a bag of ice or something, and there's this Buddha there. You know, you could put that Buddha in, in my office and leave it there round the clock. I'm never once going to be tempted to bow down to Buddha or to worship Buddha. I, that, that's, so sometimes we, we wrestle as kind of Western Christians with this idea of these pagan gods and think, what was the draw? I mean I mean, most of us are not really tempted to go and venerate Muhammad or to worship the 20,000-plus the, the gods of the Hindus. Most of us are not tempted in those ways. So it's, it seems kind of remote, even archaic or primitive. But here's what we, we know about the worship of the Canaanites with respect to the Baals and the Asherah. It was a very fleshly kind of worship. It appealed to the flesh. It had a sense of, of immediacy to it an immediate gratification. Because the Canaanites, everything in their land was about fertility. It was about crops and livestock and families. And I said this before a few sermons back, that what we know about the Canaanite religion was that they believed that Baal and his Asheroth, which was his sister, that they had to come together sexually in order to produce fruitfulness in the land. And that the Canaanites had this ritual prostitution where they would simply act out these things so that Baal, in a sense, would be motivated to have these encounters with Yastrof and produce fertility. So it was, it's, it's, a, it's a worship that is, in one sense, it's easy. It, it's fleshly. It, it sought a tangible, practical benefit, an immediacy to it that was appealing to their flesh. I mean, the people wanted worship that was that was earthy, that was carnal, that was physical, and it promised benefits to their flesh—something like health, and wealth, and prosperity. Does that ring a bell? It's the same kind of of ethos that made it appealing. It, It it tickled their ears. It tickled their flesh. And, and God's justice, God's holiness, God's goodness, his, his most pure wrath burned against them because they were trading a worship of the true and living God for a worship of images and creatures and things. So the question we, we, we must wrestle with is, does God's anger still burn against sin? Is God the New Testament God, the right-hand God of the Bible, the, the friendly God, is he still angry against sin? And the un- answer is unequivocally yes. Absolutely he is. And not only is the answer yes, but it's for precisely the same reasons. Look at what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Remember this in Romans 1. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. I think that's a pretty clear answer to the question, is God angry with sin? And it goes on to say, these men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. He's shown himself. For his invisible attributes, namely, resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. What happens here is God has presented himself as distinct, as outside above his creation, and his people have begun to worship the very things that he has made rather than him. There's this damnable exchange that's taken place. So the issue was... The issue remains, first and foremost, an issue of worship. God, God demands every human being generally to worship him because he's worthy of that. He is due to that. His goodness, his, his kindness, his generosity to man is on display ever, all around you. Creation itself bears witness to who God is. Now, we, we know that that natural revelation is not sufficient to bring us into reconciliation with God. It doesn't reveal to us that God, for example, exists in three persons. But we are without excuse. And yet man has suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. And especially God demands loyalty from his own people. Especially he demands loyalty from his own people. So I'm not going to dwell on on, on any more extensively than, than I already have with respect to the Canaanite worship. But notice this, according to God's commandments, in order to worship him, you would have to go and take the best of your crops, the best of your flocks, and bring that to God and either set it on fire or slit its throat. It required sacrifice. It required faithfulness. It required a commitment to Yahweh to worship him. The gods of the Canaanites said, it's easy. In fact, it's pleasurable for you. There's nothing demanded of you, only a promise of what might be given to you. And it's centered around fertility and fruitfulness. It was inherently sensual and sexual in nature. It appealed to the flesh. It was easy. And rather than giving to God the best of what he's given to you, offering a bloody sacrifice, subduing your own flesh, mortifying the sin that remained in you. Worship of Baal offered you immediate sexual gratification, a promise of wealth in the form of fruitful fruitful crops and and fertile livestock. But But there's a catch to that. The catch is they became enslaved. As the Puritans would say, Satan presents the bait, but he hides the hook. And, and they, what we find in the text here is they, they'd given themselves over, done evil on the side of Yahweh. They had forgotten Yahweh their God. They served the Baals and the Asherah. And then the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathaim. That language is slavery language. He sold them. God sold them into Slavery. The people of God rebelled against him. They forgot his statutes. They forgot his rules. They forgot his covenant promises. They forgot him, Yahweh himself. And the text tells us very clearly, this didn't just happen. Yahweh is the one who sold them. He rightly possessed them, and he sold them into the hands of Kushan Reshathayim, the king of Mesopotamia. Now, this this name, Kushan Reshathayim, is Repeated four times here, and that's significant. It's repeated over and over again. You think, well, why would repeat a name that long and it's a mouthful? Well, there's likely a play on words in, in the Hebrew. Um, that's revealing. Kushan Reshetayim is very likely a nickname. It's probably not his. It's not the name his mama gave him. Mesopotamia is in, in our. I'm reading from the LSB. But the the ESV translates the same way, it says Mesopotamia. But that's not what's in the Hebrew. What's in the Hebrew is the word Aram-Refaim, or Aram-Naharaim. And in the Hebrew, the words almost rhyme. There's, there's, a, there's an assonance there, they sound the same. And Aram-Naharaim means two rivers. And of course, later on, this would be the arch nemesis of the Israelites, not the Philistines, not the Jebusites or the Hittites, but the Babylonians, the Chalcedonians, the land between two rivers. Now, what's significant here is that Kushan Reshethayim, the, the Hebrew word Reshethayim means double wickedness, but it's a play on words. His name was probably Kushan from two rivers, but they they renamed him. And whether this was his own nickname that he sort of proudly gave himself or probably more likely, the Israelites named him this. It was a jab. I mean, it it was a way to mock their own oppressor. So they called him, rather than the king of two rivers, they called him the king of double wickedness. And he was a brutal ruler. We're told that he ruled over them for eight years. Years ago, we watched a um, a program. It was really interesting. It talked about various sort of minor things in history that had significant consequences. And one of the episodes dealt with the horse. And thinking about all the different kinds of animals that men have domesticated, but the horse literally transformed empires and cultures. Because a horse could eat on only grass, could carry a rider, could carry a pack, and it allowed empires to expand to the point where Historians have said that really it's about a two-day's ride on a horse. It was about the the, the scope of of an empire that could be essentially and efficiently managed. It's a long way from Mesopotamia to Judah. And yet somehow this particular king was able to subdue this people and rule them for eight years over that big of a distance. What's the answer to that? Well, Yahweh sold them into his hand. And he was able to rule in that way. This is the very image of slavery. And it's really, that's all we know about this king. Historically, we know very little about him. Biblically, we know very little about him. And and it's because that's not important. What is important is Yahweh put them there. He was a mighty king. His name, very likely a nickname, was Doubly Wicked. And the Lord used this particular man to accomplish his purposes. Del Ralph Davis describes it this way, he says, Yet even here, in Yahweh's anger, is hope for Israel. For his anger shows that he will not allow Israel to serve Baal unmolested. Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. Serving kushan reshathayim may not sound like salvation to us, and it isn't. But if it forces us to lose our grip on Baal, it may be the beginning of salvation. He goes on, we must confess that Yahweh's anger is not good news, nor is it bad news. But it is good, bad news. It shows that the covenant God who has bound himself to his people will not allow them to become cozy in their infidelity. Steadfast love pursues them in their iniquity and is not above inflicting misery in order to awaken them. The burning anger of Yahweh is certainly no picnic, but it may be the only sign of hope for God's people, even though they may be yet unaware of that fact. Do you think of hardship that way? Do you think of chastening of the Lord in that way? It's not salvation, but it might be the beginning of it. It might be the single thing that Yahweh uses to arrest our attention. In a sense to say, guys, eyes up here, look right here. Because we've forgotten Yahweh. Now, this historical event was designed by God to be an example to us. Not only an example to his ancient people, but an example to us. And there's, there's a deeper message here than what is on the surface of this historical event. This this issue of enslavement is is echoed to us throughout the Scriptures as a type for our own sin. The people of God had already been delivered from the bondage of Egypt, which throughout the Scriptures is a type. It's it's a metaphor for the deliverance from sin. And and so, too, God had sold them into the hands of Cushan Reshethahim, and they were in bondage here. They were slaves, and that's what sin does. It enslaves us. This is the deeper message that we read about God delivering his own people into the hand of a mighty king who was capable of enslaving them to such this degree. And only a powerful king could have accomplished that, but a mightier king is needed, a mightier deliverer is needed to plunder the strong man's house, to take that which was held hostage in darkness and to rescue it, sin and slaves. And every man and woman and child is born into this kind of slavery. And, and because of Adam's fall, every human being is born into a bondage of a prince much mightier than Kushan Reshethayim, more mighty than the double wicked king. And just as God's people, God's ancient people here in Israel served this doubly wicked king, by nature we too serve a wicked ruler. We've served the devil. We've believed his lies. We've carried out his desires for all mankind. And this, this is exactly, as we get into the New Testament, this is exactly how Paul understands these spiritual realities. In Ephesians 2, he says, You were dead in sins and trespasses in which you, want, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the spiritual reality. What we have here is a literal historical event that also foretells, it foreshadows, it's a preview of the greater spiritual reality into which we are all born. But the problem is, throughout human history, Men have wrestled and, and, and struggled to believe this. In fact, outright denied it. No, I'm not, I'm not a slave. Who are you talking about? I'm, not, I'm, I'm a free man. I'm an American. I can't be a slave. Well, that's exactly what the Jews said in the time of Christ. In fact, John notes that it was the Jews who believed in him who felt this way. Listen to this in John chapter 8, in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How how is it that you say you will become free? Now, first of all, we know that's not true. We know historically and theologically they made a false statement. We're sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Have you read the Bible? Over and over and over again you were enslaved. But Jesus answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, this is the reality that the bondage to Kushan Reshethahim points us toward, that by nature we are slaves. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 6. Paul, in, in typical Pauline fashion, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, puts this in a sharp, crystal clear focus for us. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, he has just has, has opened up for both Jew and Gentile both that by, by nature we're children of wrath. By nature, no one does good, not even one. And that it is only by justification, by faith alone, just as Abraham was justified, that there's any hope for man. And then he says in in chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So notice there's no third option. Well, said. you're either a slave of obedience or you're a slave to sin. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that through, that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given, were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. See, in Judges chapter 3, we're told that not only did God sell them, that's one of the verbs, God sold them into the slavery, but then the people of God served kushan rishathaim And isn't this the way that sin works in us, we don't go along kicking and screaming against our will. We serve it. We bow down to it. We, we like it. And for a time, the people of God, apparently, were just fine. Till so they finally cried out to the Lord. But Paul goes on in Romans 6, he says, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit, leading to sanctification. In the end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The people of Israel had only two options before them. They serve Yahweh, or they serve the doubly wicked king. It is the same choice put before us. It's the same choice that Joshua urged upon the people before they went into the promised land. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the God that your father served, worship the Baals, or is it Yahweh? Do you understand this theological concept that sin is not just something that happens to you it's not just something that you do it is a master it is a slave master it is it is a jailman it is a a bondsman young people listen very carefully to this you may be tempted to think in the very same way that the jews thought sons of abraham how can i be a slave of anyone You may be tempted to think, well, I I mean, I'm I'm American. On top of that, I'm Texan. I can't be a slave to anyone. Or even more, I've grown up in the church. My parents are Christians. I mean, my parents don't even let me do anything. How can I be a slave to sin? My parents don't even let me do the things that my peers do. How can I be a slave to sin? See, do not think that way. Don't entertain those thoughts in your heart and your mind because slavery begins not out there with something that happens to you. Slavery begins inside of you. It begins with a desire to do that which God says is wrong. And, And you give in just a little bit and then it takes a hold and it's more and more you're stuck in the mire. What the Bible says about you is far more accurate. It's far more true than anything you think about yourself. You are not truth. God is truth. But thanks be to God, he didn't leave his people there. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends. We're going to see later on, Judges, that it does end. In some of these cycles with the judges, it does end at precisely that point. But here, again, this is the the prototype. This is the first and best of the judges. Here's the cycle that we want to see God raised up a Savior. He raised up Othniel to deliver his people from the double wicked king. And, and this, was, this was all of God's unmerited compassion towards them. Look what happens. Back to chapter 3 of Judges. The anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served cushan Reshethaim eight years. The sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a Savior for the sons of Israel to save them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Saints, stop and meditate. And if you read through the Psalms, you'll see that word selah, S-E-L-A-H. And for the best we can tell, it's a musical term that means something along the lines of pause and ponder, stop and consider. I think we could use a selah right here. Think about this. There's not a hint here that the people of God repented. Not one hint of it. They just cried out. They cried mercy. They cried uncle. The the, the oppression was getting the best of them and they just cried out to Yahweh. Maybe they'd already cried out to the other gods. Maybe they had, had... Gone the way of the prophets of Baal. Maybe they already cut themselves and cried out and and hollered and and did everything and, and Baal didn't answer because Baal is dumb and deaf and blind. He is not a God who speaks. He is not a God who hears. He is not a God who acts. But Yahweh heard them and he responded. And he responded in compassion and kindness and mercy to them. Don't miss this. Don't miss the kindness of God that even their half-hearted cry got his attention. Do not think that God is cold and distant and remote, that he doesn't care for you. God had set his covenantal love from eternity upon his people, his white, hot, holy love. And they cried out to him and he heard them and he raised up a rescuer, a savior, a deliverer for them. From all of eternity, God the Father had fixed his infinite love upon his people and nothing in all of creation could change that, not even them. That leads us to the final point. Notice here that God's deliverance foreshadows a triune work of redemption. It foreshadows a triune work of redemption. So we see in verse 9, the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh. Yahweh raised up a savior for the sons of Israel to save them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and the judge, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and Yahweh gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. So his hand was strong against Cushan-Rishathaim. And again, a pronoun would have would have suited here for any of these, for at least two, probably three of the uses of the name kushan reshapayim, but the author repeats it on purpose. Both with respect to their bondage, but also with respect to his destruction. Remember in Isaiah 33 that I read today, there was the the leader who would deal treacherously, but one day his treachery would be turned on himself. In Othniel, we read the account of God the Father sending a judge, literally a savior, a deliverer who is filled with his Holy Spirit. Othniel, again, is the first. He's the best of these judges, the best of these saviors. And he foreshadows the Father sending his only begotten Son, the perfect, complete deliverer, Jesus Christ, who was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. Yahweh hears, which, which is an act of just unmerited unfathomable grace that he hears them. There's, again, no evidence of true repentance. God raises up a deliverer who will save his people. He fills that deliverer with the power of his spirit, and he crushes crushes the enemy of his people. And this ought to remind us of a promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled, They rebelled against God. They ate of that which God said, do not eat. God cursed the ground because of Adam. He thrust them out of the garden. He sold them into the slavery of their own sin. But you know what he also did? He promised on that day, one day, I will raise up a deliverer. I will send the seed of the woman who will crush the double wicked king's head. I will crush the head of the serpent. Othniel points us to that deliverer. And then, as we go through the history of Israel, you go through the, the law, you go through the prophets, and then you go through the years of captivity, and then God restoring them, and then we, in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, and then we see the very last chapter of Malachi, and there's 400 years of silence. Not a word from God for four centuries. And then the Spirit appears to Joseph. And gospel, Matthew's Gospel records, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. <laughs> he will save his people from their sins." He will will deliver them. He will rescue them. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh, the kindness of God to hear the cry, to hear the misery, to observe the misery of mankind and to send his only son. God raised up a Savior. And, And when we read the Old Testament narratives it's important to, to observe what we're told. Because you think about this. Whether it was um, Samuel or someone else who who is the human author of the book of Judges, we, we don't know for certain. But he, he did not give us every detail that he could have given us. For example, you're curious, anything else about Othniel? I mean, how old was this guy? Um, how old was he when, when he died? What's his little brother's name? What did he like to eat? We're not told any of those things, are we? So anytime we're reading Old Testament narrative, we ought to pay very close attention to what we are told. Because there's no extra words, there's no superfluous, there's no useless words. We're told some very specific things about Othniel. It may not be the kinds of things that would satisfy our curiosity. It might not be the kinds of things if we were, I don't know, a newspaper, not even have those anymore, if we were a journalist of some kind, because you've got your vlog or whatever, and you're trying to interview Othniel, what kind of questions would you ask? It's not the kind of questions, it's not the kind of answers that we get. but What we get is very significant. So what we are told is, is no accident. What are we told about Othniel? We're told that he was a nephew of Caleb. And that because of his valor, because of his faithfulness, he was given a godly wife. We're also told something else significant about Othniel and his family. If you turn back a couple pages to Judges one, look at verse eight. <clears throat> the sons and again. You're going to see some repetition here, and and notice how the the tribal name of Judah is repeated. That's important. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem, verse 8, and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the Shephelah. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Shishiah and Ahimon and Talmiah. Then from there... He went against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber, formerly, was Kiriath-sefer. And Caleb said, The one who strikes Kiriath-sefer and captures it, I will give him my daughter Axa as a wife. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa as a wife. Now it happened that when she came to him, her father, she enticed him to ask her father for the field. When she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. So you shall give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the sons of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Erod, and they went and lived with the people. See, here's the thing the first and best judge is an adopted son of Judah. He's not a native Israelite, he's been grafted in. He's a, he's a child of promise, not a son of Abraham by birth. Now, this gets even more interesting if you turn back even a few more pages to Joshua. Just go one book back to Joshua 14. Keep in mind, Caleb is Ophniel's uncle. Joshua 14, verse 6. Now, the sons, or then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kinezite, said to him, You know the word which Yahweh spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed Yahweh my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever because you have followed Yahweh my God fully. So now behold, Yahweh has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from that time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. So now behold, I am 85 years old today. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me, as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. So now give me, give me this hill country about which Yahweh spoke on that day, for you heard on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps Yahweh will be with me and I will dispossess them as Yahweh has spoken so Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunah for an inheritance therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite until this day because he fully followed Yahweh the God of Israel Now you remember the story Moses at one point went to the land of Midian of course he took Zipporah his wife Jethro was his father-in-law Jethro was a Kenite he was not an Israelite. And, and later, Moses invited his brother-in-law, basically Jethro's son, to join with them. You could read this in Numbers. And he declined, but Caleb and others did go with him. Caleb goes with no assurance whatsoever of a promise to him and his family. He, of the 12 spies, was one of two that goes into the land and says, I believe Yahweh will give this to us. I've seen the giants. I don't doubt the giants, but I think God will cause them to be dispossessed from the land and he will give it to me. And God, God said, you are right, and I will give it to you because of your faith. Othniel's his nephew, following in those same footsteps, believing God's promise. It's no accident here that Othniel is presented to us as a man of grace by grace. The Lord raised up an adopted son of Judah to deliver his people. Does that sound familiar? See, the typology is rich in the book of Judges. And it's wonderful to meditate on. We also see in Othniel a godly, faithful wife. We don't, so Again, we're, we're given just tidbits, but those tidbits are important she believed that God would give them the land in perpetuity. So she says, I need water because we're going to be here a while. See, you have a picture of a Savior who has a bride who advances her husband's kingdom, who looks to her father in faith, believing that by means of her husband, she will be established in the land forever. It's just rich, isn't it? So the Lord uses an adopted son of Judah to save his people by the power of his Holy Spirit. Again, does that sound familiar? God the Father hears and loves, sends a deliverer, fills that deliverer with his Spirit, and rescues his people. Now, Othniel is the first. He's the best judge, but he's only a preview. He's only a preview, and we know this because verse 11 Go back to Judges 3. Verse 11 closes the door, so to speak, on any idea that Othniel is the answer. Why? Because Othniel dies. And it's significant that we're told that the land was quiet for 40 years. Basically, an entire generation, the land was quiet. It doesn't say the people were quiet or the people were at ease. it says the land was. For 40 years... And yet Othniel died. He was a finite savior. He was a man as good as he was, and there's not a single fault recorded for us in the Bible about Othniel. Now, we know he was was a son of Adam, so he was not sinless, but he's not presented to us as as the rest of the judges are with all of their faults. You know, we get to Gideon. Gideon was a mighty savior, but in the end, he's worshiping the ephod he had made. Samson, from from the get-go, Samson's got issues. Othniel's not presented to us in that way. He's presented to us as the just man, the warrior who redeemed the people. But he was a finite savior. He was a man constrained by his solely human nature. and He dies. And the, the, the text here tells us that, that it was merely the land that had rest for 40 years. An entire generation had rest from war, but that was it. As great as Othniel was, and, and as the the author here is, is intentional in presenting to us to him and presenting him to us in a favorable way, but the salvation that he accomplished, that the Lord accomplished through Othniel, was only outward, it was only temporary, it was only earthly. It only dealt with their outward circumstances. It changed nothing about what caused the enslavement to begin with. Because what happened in the beginning? The sons of Israel did what was evil on the side of Yahweh. Did Othniel fix that? They, They forgot Yahweh, their God. Did anything that Othniel do change that? They worshiped and serve the Baals and the asheroth. Did Othniel change any of that? No. This is why this serves as a preview for us. He accomplished nothing with respect to the minds and the hearts and the souls of God's people. The, the inner man remained in bondage to his sin. He remained lawless at heart. This is why later on the prophet Jeremiah would say, here's here's what's so new about the new covenant that will come. One day I will make a new covenant with you, not like the one I made with your fathers. In this new covenant, I will give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. I will write the law on your heart so that no more will one neighbor say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know him from the greatest to the least. But thankfully, in the fullness of time, God did send such a deliverer. He sends his own son, who's born of a woman. He was fully man, just as Othniel was, except that he was also fully God. He was not only a perfect man, but he was God-made flesh. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and see how the Apostle Paul unpacks the necessity of such a deliverer. And to see how this work of redemption that was merely foreshadowed in Othniel, the work of the Father and of a a faithful Son and the Spirit, and to see how this is now at work in the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father and by the Spirit. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he graciously bestowed on us In the beloved, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him we also have been made, have have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul very clearly teaches on the authority of God's word that this salvation is necessarily triune. It is God the Father who loved from eternity, who elected from eternity, who set his grace upon his people, and who sent his only begotten Son. And that Son was filled beyond measure with his Spirit. So the Father sends, the Son accomplishes the work of redemption, and the Spirit of God applies that redemption to the hearts and minds and wills of his people. Othniel points us to this triune work of salvation. The Father sees the misery of mankind and raises up a Savior, his, his eternally begotten Son. He fills him with his Spirit, and now this Holy Spirit continues to apply that work of redemption to us. And it is not only the work of justification that is triune. It is the ongoing work of sanctification that requires the triune work of God. The father sins, the son saves, and by the Spirit's power, that salvation is applied to the very hearts of God's people. So as we think about Othniel, we think about the God's work through him, may we be exhorted to cry out to the Lord and ask that he will heal our land it is not only in, in the hearts of his covenant people that God works, but God works according to his common grace for an entire nation, an entire community, an entire land. Our land is defiled, saints. I don't have to convince you of that. The, the horrors of things that are going on in our own nation, in our own communities, even in places that are supposedly you know red or conservative or whatever you want to call it, the, the vileness, the wickedness, and it is not only the pagans, the Baals, the Canaanites in our land. but Many who name the name of Christ are approving such things. May we cry out for the Lord to be merciful, to heal our land, to give us peace. It is a worthy thing for us to ask that God, according to his common grace, would give us just rulers, to give, land, give our land peace. That is a blessing to the church of Jesus Christ. To have peace in the land. To be free from conflict. To have, have a, a measure of economic security. To have our children at least safe to walk down a street. So are worthy things for which we ought to pray. And also, we ought to seek rescue from our own sin. By the mighty hand of God, that we would cry out to Him in faith. Cry out to Him, believing the gospel of His Son crying out that only only by the mighty hand of the one and only deliverer can we be saved can we be preserved and ultimately by that same hand will be will we be glorified in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit so let's pray together our father and our god we thank you for your word we thank you for the, for the variety of ways that you speak to us. We thank you that even, even today we're able to read in the book of Judges and, and read these accounts of your gracious work among your stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people. And to see and read with our own eyes and to hear with our own ears how in the fullness of time you made known to us the full measure of your redemptive power and work that these stories foreshadowed. Lord, will you grant us the grace to believe these precious promises, to hold fast and rest in the promise of our Savior. We thank you that we in Him, we are not promised a generation or two generations or even a hundred generations of peace, but eternity. forever and ever and ever, to dwell face to face with our Savior, to be at rest from our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. Thank you for these precious and very great promises, and I pray that you grant to us, your people, the grace to believe it. I pray that those here, even in our midst today, who have not yet trusted in Christ, in Christ alone, for the pardon of their sins, for the cleansing of their iniquity, that today would be a day Be the day of salvation, the day that a hard heart is made tender before the throne of your grace. That today would be a day that one cries out for mercy. And you will hear and you will save. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.